Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, June 27th, and for this Media Monday, John Kelly and I talk about how the press, in particular cable news, has been covering the end of Roe versus Wade. And we'll talk about semaphores, grand ambitions, and also what is semaphore for exactly? We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Monday, everybody. This is John Kelly coming in hot on Media Monday. Uh, This is the last week before 4th of July holiday. Hopefully everyone has plans. John, what are you doing for the 4th? For the 4th, we're going to be staying local, Peter. Um, Maybe a little fireworks if uh, if I can get my hands on them. And um, hopefully, you know, the boring traditional pool time, barbecue, family, etc. That's not boring. Oh, well, you're just saying that to to make me feel better. How about you? I'm sure you have much better plans. Um, I, Katie and I are going to Mata's Vineyard. Are you really? Wow. Obamaville. Our, our friends have like a condo there and we're going with them, uh, which will be nice. We're just going to ride our bikes around and say, happy 4th. Martha's happy Vineyard fourth. friends are the best friends, as we all know. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, we're looking forward to it. Um, anyway, uh, we've had three days now to digest how the media writ large has been covering the, um, the Roe v. Wade news, um, that it is no longer the law of the land and states around the country have already stri- started to enact abortion restrictions. Um, I wrote about this with Dylan a little bit on Friday, but I don't know. Do you have any like macro takes on how the press has been covering the news? I mean, this is a huge story, obviously. I don't have any huge astoundingly, uh, newer, brilliant macro takes, but here's one observation I actually, I, I got a couple of um, of critical letters back to the email, the backstory that I send every Saturday. And the backstory is, is really an attempt for me to explain what's going on at Puck and talk about what um, the work we're doing and, and the story behind the story in many cases. And a couple of, of readers uh, w- were perplexed that I didn't dedicate the entire email to, to Roe. Um, and, and I totally understand that. This is an incredibly personal issue, it, you know, it's appalling on many levels and, and and I feel personally connected to it too. But it was an interesting observation to me in part because it reflected a feeling that uh, all media should be covering this. That, that was the, uh, the perception that I had when I read these notes. And I think that that's, <laughs> I, I think that we're in for a fascinating time here because this is certainly going to be the media story of the next three months. I don't know about you, Peter, but in, in my text threads, we're not, we've not been talking about gas prices for the last three days. We've not been talking about Ukraine for the last three days. And, and I think that the, the timing of this ruling and the, the coincidence of the midterms is so significant that it is obviously a political story and it's a, a personal medical story, but it is also a media story to how these large media organizations covered. You and Dylan certainly got into this a bit on Friday. And in some cases how politicized uh, it will be by media organizations that would not normally cover this sort of issue. You know, in the Trump years, I feel like every media organization was either a resistance organization, became a resistance organization or, or a pro-Trump organization. And I really wonder, these notes I got on Saturday really made me wonder if some version of that chasm will uh, will occur again where you're either, you know, 
credentialing yourself as being uh, pro-Roe or, or pro-Alito. Yeah, no, that's actually a really interesting thought. I mean, I, I think that, I think you're right that most of the mainstream press sort of became kind of resistancy and, you know, like newsrooms have been culturally liberal for <laughs> much longer before we came around. Um, but I do have a hunch that peop- that newsrooms, editors, reporters will, you know, face pressure from their readers and viewers and from Twitter to be fully against this ruling, right? And like, certainly, like, I I personally think it's draconian and bad, but a lot of people in this country have more complicated feelings about abortion than are represented in just like, are you for or against overturning Roe v. Wade? And that's sort of what I wrote about with Dylan on Friday, which is, is, and I was watching MSNBC at the time, you know, they, uh, one show had on a pro-life uh, activist and they were asking her like her response to the ruling and obviously her you know the decades of activism that went into this and the MSNBC host kept going back to the poll which has been it's similar data across different polls over the last few years do you support or oppose overturning Roe v. Wade and generally that number is like around 60 to 65 percent people support Roe v. Wade right so it's like a like a 60 30 issue generally once you start to dig into um, different trimesters, for example, then it becomes a little more complicated. And a majority of Americans, a big majority, in fact, um, oppose second trimester <laughs> abortions. I, I mean, like the Mississippi law, for example, that was the Dobbs case at the heart of the uh, ruling on Friday, like that banned abortion after 15 weeks. A lot of Americans would be okay with that. Uh, you know, and like that is just a point of view. I, again, don't personally agree with it, but like that's a point of view that was not represented in this MSNBC conversation and probably won't be represented by a lot of news organizations. I mean, there are just a lot of people who, for various reasons, um, you know, are queasy about abortion. And it's like the biggest thing about abortion in terms of public opinion is that it's not, do you support or oppose overturning Roe? Like most people don't support that. It's that most people live in this little gray area where it's, you know, it, it depends, like, is it someone I know? Is it rape and incest? Is it or first trimester or second trimester? You know, like, there's, it's a very difficult thing. And I think the the Democratic Party, too, and progressive corners of the internet have basically, I think in recent years especially, have started to talk about abortion as if, like, playing right into conservatives' hands almost by saying abortion should be available all the time for whoever wants it. And most Americans don't think that way. I would be interested to see if the press talks to those sort of gray area voices over the next six months heading into the midterms and beyond. You made a, a couple of incredibly smart points. Uh, the the one that, like, you know, I've, I've been thinking about a lot in the last couple of days is the Republicans actually knew better, far better than the Democrats about these gray area issues and how and how complicated the the conversation about abortion got when you got to uh, third trimester and. And, and in ways that the Republican apparatus has been good at for a very long time, they knew how to sort of language weaponize the debate to, to great effect. Um, you know, when I heard terms like heartbeat bans, it made me think of like Frank Luntz and, and the, the death tax, you know. Um, um, and your cable news point is, is triggering in, in some ways because it's hard not to feel, and I feel like we're, we're very connected on, on this front, that... TV news, cable news, largely became a 
an increasingly stupidifying medium over the last five years. Like it was, it was um, a medium that benefited from screaming, from oversimplicity, from you know, it was almost like at its at its worst. And I don't, I don't want to oversimplify, so um, you know, uh, I'll, allow me to, to elaborate a bit. It had adapted a bit of like a Vince McMahon WWE type vibe, where there were good guys and bad guys, and they were and they were battling it out on, on intellectual platforms. And you made a really smart point in your conversation with Dylan about how this moment befits the sort of crystallic strategy of really exploring the space in the center where it does get complicated, where you do have to figure out how do you, how do you exchange information? How do you understand what either low information voters or religious voters or, uh, or activist voters on both sides really believe? I sincerely hope that happens. I am more than slightly concerned that this topic and just how, how poignant, how important this topic is, is going to potentially really force us back into an era of, uh, of shouting matches where, where hosts and guests have to signal to their audience what they truly believe in and that it's a zero-sum game and that they absolutely can't have a reasonable adult conversation with anyone who disagrees with them, that, that they are the enemy. And if, if that happens, I think it is a major business problem for these organizations. And I think you got that part absolutely right. I mean, I, Reuters just did their annual trust survey and they did trust in media among a bunch of different institutions. And CNN is now more distrusted than trusted and is less trusted than MSNBC, which it, it makes me sad. But during the Trump years, MSNBC and CNN did exactly what you were saying. There were good guys and bad guys, Republicans, and Democrats. And like, I'm sorry, like the the truth is, ne- is, is isn't, in the middle between those two polls, but it's somewhere in between sometimes. And one reason people have lost trust in a lot of newsrooms um, over the last five years isn't just because Trump was yelling at them and calling them fake news. It's that, you know, most people don't see the world that way and understand that, like, there's not a clean answer to everything. People's political views and cultural views are a little ambiguous. And I think that presenting inconvenient, sometimes facts, to viewers and readers is important because it makes you understand that like whichever way you're voting, people don't think like you and you need to figure out ways to persuade people, uh, you know, at the water cooler, at the the pool with the kids when you're talking to someone's dad. I don't know. It's just like MSNBC certainly inhabits more of a fact-based universe than Fox News, but there is definitely some cherry picking of facts to feed their sort of boomer liberal audience. And it just makes me a little, this is not a new observation. It just makes me a little uncomfortable as a journalist. And I will give them props for this and CNN did the same thing. News organizations knew this ruling was coming down either Friday or Monday. And so it wasn't just panel pundit stuff. They had reporters like Cal Perry on MSNBC was positioned in St. Louis. A lot of newsrooms had reporters in the field and they were talking to people. And that's valuable and important rather than just like sending a reporter to like Union Square or like the White House where there's a protest. Like, I hope that Cable starts to send reporters out into the world more rather than just doing the like pundit panel stuff. This is the, the, exactly the dynamic I'm talking about. NBC has all these really great reporters and the reporter will be in the field covering something like immigration or a shooting or some political rally and just doing good reporting. And then you go back to the host in the panel and it's just like opinion, cherry picking facts. And it's just like this weird, this is just true with MSNBC generally, like this conflict between the NBC news journalists who are doing the news 
and the pundits who like want to, and the, and the anchors sometimes who just want to present a certain narrative that might conflict with what the actual reporter on the ground is saying. And that is, that's not, again, not a new observation. That's been the case at MSNBC for a long time. It's just like, it's just weird. <laughs> it's a weird dynamic to me. And it's funny too with MSNBC in particular, because I think their audience, a part of their audience feels like they, they should be able to do better, you know, that, and, and by do better, I mean, be more down the middle, represent when there are inconsistencies in the narrative. The business reality is a little more challenging. MSNBC, it inadvertently or intentionally, uh, it picked its lane on the left and it, it lurched further left um, because there was an audience there and it was convenient. And in order to maintain its ratings, it may have to do that whether it wants to or not. Uh, by the same token, when you were when you were talking, I, I couldn't help but think that you know the New York Times is now talking about getting to 15 million paid subscribers in the next five years. That's five or so million more subscribers who are not going to be Wordle subscribers. You know, uh, there will be people who <laughs> many Republicans, as there already are certainly that that pay for the Times, but many people who supported this decision, and that's going to be it's a business challenge, but it's actually probably also a slightly existential one for for many people who work there who do not want their content to be consumed by people who see the world so fundamentally differently. Uh, it's going to be an, an extraordinarily challenging and, and just weird, uh, fundamentally weird uh, dynamic to see play out. All right, John, I want to go to a break real quick. And when we come back, we're going to talk about semaphore, semaphore, semaphore. Never heard of it. <laughs> Okay, during the break, did you Google how to pronounce semaphore? <laughs> <laughs> what is semaphore for people that don't know? I think it's like a like a, a telegraph conductor. I no no no. I know that. I know that. No no. I'm saying there might be people listening to this who don't oh. know what the news brand that Ben Smith and Justin Smith are launching is called. So semaphore is a international in outlook. I think genuinely nonpartisan media companies uh, founded by Ben and Justin Smith. They've uh, hired a couple other people and it's launching in the fall. And it's probably the, the most hyped media company. I'm trying to think of, of a candidate that we can remember like like this. Peter Quibi? Like, <laughs> I was thinking of a political candidate. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure they oh, love a candidate. Oh, candidate yeah. comparison. Um, Tim Pawlenty, I don't know, a, a, a candidate who was... Um, who, who, who Don't was, compare was, was before very to hyped Valenti. in the um, in the uh, in, in my mind there we were in this in the semaphore play uh, stage of of the semaphore um, uh, uh, you know uh, era and I feel like part of why we're chatting about it now is you threw a Times article into Puck's general Slack last week that an announced um, that they'd close their twenty five million dollars Series A round. It's filled with a bunch of individual investors. Um, wealthy people like Sam Bankman-Fried and, and David Bradley. But this has been a sort of quixotic thing. Ben Smith and Justin Smith are incredibly accomplished people. They're very smart. We're friendly with both of them, blah, blah, blah. We laughed before we were taping because we both read the Politico story too that Jack Schaefer wrote that basically said like, like memo to the New York Times, enough with this fucking semaphore stuff. Um, this is the, <laughs> the lead. Uh, well, someone slapped the New York Times at the restraining order. The premier newspaper of the ruling classes can't stop writing about semaphore. Justin and Ben Smith startup that aspires to be the premier website for the news hungry ruling classes. So 
I think Semaphore is going to be something like the a modern version of um, of the FT meets the Economist meets the the New York Times, and they're going to launch with dozens and dozens of journalists, and they're going to launch this fall. And the other detail of the Times story, and this is where I want to get your perspective, Peter, is that they are going to launch in DC um, with uh, which I think Dylan actually broke a couple uh, of months ago in Puck, uh, but they're going to uh, be very focused on. Uh, on events, they, they hired a guy named Steve Clemens, who's really sort of the the mayor down there when it comes to convening people. And Ben's doing an event with, I think, Tucker Carlson and Taylor Lorenz about trusted news, which we were just talking about before. So I have two questions for you. Are you going to go to this panel? Um, do you want to see Tucker and Taylor on stage? And do you think that the trusted news issue is going to be solved by new players in the news space? Oh, uh, second question is... Interesting. I need to think about that for a second. First question, I will not be leaving Los Angeles to go to Washington to go to this panel. Um, uh, it seems that, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it'll make news. Um, ben certainly loves um, and has a knack for making news and being in the conversation. Um, my question around it is also just really about what Semaphore is generally. Like, I don't, like, I don't know what the like end product is supposed to be or what the point of view is, not that I don't trust them to develop it. Um, and so, yeah, like they should have an events business. I get that. <laughs> and again, coming off this like trust survey uh, that Reuters did, I mean, again, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, the number one most trusted news brand in the United States is the BBC. <laughs> like every everything else, I think, you know, legacy news brands have lost a lot of trust over the last uh, five years. Um, and again, not just with, conservatives, but with independents and Democrats, it's like it's gone down across the board. Um, I hope that new startups like Semaphore and Puck, for example, um, that create a stronger, and I think, I think Semaphore is trying to do this. I mean, we have adjacent, I think, business models, although not exactly the same, but they want to create that like closer relationship between the newsroom and the journalist and the readers. And we're certainly doing that. And I think from what I'm hearing from people, like people love reading Puck and their, our open rates are great and people, like people are signing up left and right. That's not just hype. Like we're doing that because we respect the reader and we don't necessarily do what we were talking about earlier, which is like yell at them or cherry pick like facts that are inconvenient. And I don't think startups aren't necessarily going to solve the trust problem, but I think the combination of like new business models and having a like Chris Lichtian <laughs> back to basics kind of journalism is what I think a lot of people are striving to do right now. And I think there's a hunger for it. I just think there are a lot of conversations that happen in people's lives that they would never tweet about, that they would never write about, but happen in DMs, happen on group texts. And, you know, they, those conversations often run up against what the, you know, guardrails of either political correctness are or what the received wisdom is. And I think that readers of all ages, races and genders and classes want just people to tell the truth and be honest rather than like tell people what they want to hear. Um, and maybe that sounds too pie in the sky, but I hope that Semaphore does that because it certainly sounds like they're trying to rival at least the way Ben's talked about it, the New York Times and CNN because they're creating this like huge global plan. I mean, they're, they're even saying like, they're going to have like a 10 year vest for their employees. Like that's a long roadmap, but they're certainly 
have grand ambitions. 25 million bucks is, is a lot of money. And I think that they, they do have big ambitions. And, and you know, I, I think we're, we're fans and supporters. What, uh, this is a small market, so it's good for them. Will be, uh, will be good for us. But w- one thought, though, you're totally right that we're in adjacent like philosophies about you know erasing the synapse between the the creator or journalist or storyteller and the consumer on the other side. But uh, I'm a humongous believer that business models end up dictating everything in life, in the world. Um, it's, it is the, the most deeply rooted motive you have. It, it's, it's where you really, you know, sort of sow the, the DNA of the company. And I noticed at buried to the end of the time story was that uh, a woman who'd been at The Athletic named Caitlin Roman was leaving the company after only a few months. And from what I understand about Semaphore, they're, they're not building a subscription business to start, um, which is when you would normally build a subscription business. So, um, and that's, you know, obviously it's a tool that we believe in significantly in Puck. And it, it may be one that Semaphore gets to down the line, but, um, you know, my experience in this is that you, you, if you have a chance to start from scratch, it's something that you, you bake into the DNA. So if you're not focused on subscriptions and you're focused on advertising and they have a master salesperson in Justin who's been a media CEO before and has relationships throughout the industry and certainly all over Washington, then you are selling big ticket items that rely on CPMs, that rely on traffic, that rely on distribution. I completely believe in the noble intentions of Semaphore. I think it'll be great. I think Ben's incredibly smart and obviously very, very capable. But you have to meet those CPMs. You have to match them. And I earnestly hope that they can avoid the pitfalls of other of other companies that had to meet their quotas to to guarantee uh, you know the, the the fees they were charging in advertising, and I'm sure maybe at the beginning for launch sponsors, there there won't be uh, baked in KPIs. But over time, I have to assume, just being a realist, that there will be, and they'll have to find ways to prevent their teams from creating the work that travels fastest along the agenda. Because I think what we know now is that that doesn't make for uh, for good media, and it doesn't make for good business, and it doesn't make for a good quixotic nonpartisan, postpartisan, trust in media world that we're trying to figure out here. So I, I really hope that they can find ways to sustainably make a lot of cash without having to uh, lean into the perverse incentives of the, the era that is just ending now. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. But I am, I'm, I know you are too, like I'm rooting for them. Like I think the world really, really needs more just like fact-based journalism and Man, I have new business models and like new formats. Frankly, that's what that's what I'm interested to see. Like Ben and Justin both talked about like format, um, which is really important to me. Um, so I'm curious to see like whether that what that means in terms of like video and audio or whatever they're thinking up. So we'll see. John, have a great week. You too, Peter. I missed you. It was fun talking with Dylan, but uh, he's no Peter Hamby, so I missed the real thing. Have a good one, buddy. Thanks, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 